Hello and welcome to Behind the Health Statistic. My name is Ricky Hellier and I'm a lecturer at Cardiff University School of Healthcare Sciences. Today my colleague Martina Nathan will be talking to Lara Cope about her experience of childhood cancer. So what is cancer? Well, the word cancer covers a broad range of conditions affecting different parts of the body. What happens is cells grow and reproduce uncontrollably. The cancer cells can overtake and start to destroy healthy tissue and organs. Cancer sometimes begins in one part of the body before spreading to other areas. This process is known as metastases. We know that approximately one in two people will develop some form of cancer during their lifetime. And within the UK, the four most common types of cancer are lung cancer, prostate cancer, bowel cancer and breast cancer. Within the UK, around about 4,500 children and young people are diagnosed with cancer every year. As with adult cancers, there are multiple different types and we know there's at least 76 types of children's cancers and these are categorised into 12 main groups. The most common childhood cancers are leukaemia, they account for around about 30% of all childhood cancers, brain and central nervous system tumours around about 20% and lymphomas accounting for around about 11%. As Martine and Lara will discuss, the types of cancer affecting children are often very different from cancers that affect teenagers and adults. However, thanks to scientific research and development of treatments, the number of children and young people surviving has dramatically improved over the last half a century, with four out of five young cancer patients being successfully treated. Now over to Martina and Lara. Thank you, Lara, for, for joining me today. Um, so you, you had childhood cancer, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma yeah. in your childhood. So can you tell me a little bit about, I suppose, the background to that so your kind of your family your family history uh, and then if we move on to let's say the onset of the diagnosis sure yeah so um i had a pretty normal childhood i guess um both my parents are in healthcare professions um and like they they were working full-time and i was just yeah just growing up like normal normal childhood really um don't have any family history of cancer that i'm aware of apart from um i think one older family member had did have cancer but completely unrelated to to mine so no sort of uh, genetic link or anything there at all um so yeah so other than that our family experience of of cancer was you know pretty much non-existent really um yeah my cancer presented itself um like asthma that's that's what um the gps thought that i had um because i developed this cough um i was wheezing um quite short of breath um when family friends talk about that time that i was ill they they sort of uh, remark that i was quite a slight child so in comparison to my brother who quite liked rough and tumble um, they say that I around that time I kind of looked maybe less a little bit fragile I guess um, but I never felt I never felt that I, I didn't I didn't sort of slide away from from doing things that kids do um, yeah so I had this this cough um, and the wheezing and shortness of breath and was back and forth to the GP and they'd put me on um, like asthma pumps and the peak flow meters and my mum had this fold out chart that she had to complete every day with my with my symptoms um, and they kind of they they literally got worse over probably about a six week period it was it was really quite rapid 
Um, and I started having, I remember in school, in, one day I had, I blacked out twice in, in school, just playing. Um, and um, my mum was called to come and collect me. Um, and we'd, we'd been away for a weekend, um, visiting family and friends. And I'd woken in the night coughing, um, but nothing was really working. And my peak flow uh, reading was very, very low. And I remember looking at it and thinking that's a bit low. Um, and so we, we came home early and my parents called the out of hours um, GP. And he came to the house and he took my temperature and assessed me and said, oh, I think she should probably go in um, to, the, to the nearby um, hospital, which had the children's unit at the time. And yeah, it kind of escalated from there, really. So I spent most of that night then having <clears throat> x-rays and blood tests and I uh, was transferred to the, bit, the nearest big hospital um, for CT scans. And I had a huge um, mass on my chest. Um, my dad recalls, they said it was like roughly the size of a grapefruit. Um, and it had basically blocked my left uh, bronchus. So hence why I couldn't really breathe properly. Um, and they, they said it was really, um, it was like an emergency situation really. Um, so I was started on chemotherapy pretty much straight away um my my dad who'd gone home to look after my brother was called and said how quickly can you get here kind of thing um and i was i was put into intensive care on a life support for, for about five days um yeah so um yeah so it was pretty um <laughs> a pretty uh, serious situation for my for my parents really very very scary time um very scary time because of you know having a huge media spinal mass and you know your life being threatened but also a very scary time to come into you know having to deal with a diagnosis of cancer um at that so do your parents and family talk about that time? and what do you remember of that time and what age were you at that time um lara yeah, so I was diagnosed when I was seven um, and I had treatment for two years. That was the, the kind of the protocol at the time, um, the pathway that I was on. So two, two years chemotherapy, didn't have any radiotherapy. Um, and from what I know, the cancer responded really well to the chemotherapy. Um, and my parents were, you know, when they sort of explained the, the treatment regime, quite a lot of that time that I was on treatment was about stopping it from coming back, um, as opposed to it not really working, if that makes sense. Um, so yeah, so I, I always knew that I had cancer and I always knew I had non-Hodgkin's lymphoma and I could tell people. <laughs> um, I actually have a lot of memories at that, at that time. Um, I could probably write a book about it if I'm honest. Um, and um, yeah, and it's just, it was, it's just been always been like a, a part of my life, really. Um, my parents, um, they're better talking about it now. Um, when I was a teenager and was, um, it was when I was a teenager that I really started to kind of comprehend what had happened to me and the, you know, the kind of risk to my life. Um, 
and I was still having follow-up then so I had follow-up um, until I was 16 um, so a lot of the questions that they would ask me at the appointments um, as I was getting older I was starting to question like why are you asking me these questions like this was years ago <laughs> why are you asking me if I've had any how is my breathing and we need another we need a heart scan and I'm like why do you need to do these things um, so yeah so it was when I was a teenager that I really started to fully understand what had happened um, to me um, and my, I think my parents struggled to talk about it particularly my mum she's very much like well it's done now and you're better and let's not go back down that road um, but for me it was really helpful to kind of to understand it um, to understand what has happened and to kind of make sense of it really. And it is a very difficult time because it's a journey, isn't it? You know, your diagnosis was so uh, acute mm -hmm. uh, and then you moved on definitely then into, you know, quite a lengthy time of treatment. So yeah. you mentioned you had cytotoxic chemotherapy. So, you know, we know that that also brings lots of challenges and side effects. Can you remember that period of time, Lara? Yeah, so I think um, it... I know that I was on uh, methotrexate um, and vincristin. Um, I can't remember any of the other drugs, unfortunately. They have very long names, these drugs. Yeah, yeah. Um, I did end up getting a vincristin burn okay, yeah. on my left hand, which took ages to heal. That was, that was really horrible. Um, and uh, yeah, I wasn't very happy about that. Um, and yeah, side effects, well, from the steroids, I was very, I put on a bit of weight and I had very, um, I think it's, it's a cushionoid features. Yeah. So very round moon face. Um, and some of the photographs, um, of, of me ill, um, quite a lot of them I'm, I'm fine with. I look quite happy, even bald head from losing my hair and my teeth were falling out because I was that age where you, you yeah. losing your milk teeth um, and I just had to start wearing glasses as well um, so I looked a picture um, and but no there are some photographs which I find very hard to look at um, particularly the ones where I am very yeah uh, swollen looking and um, I look I look really sick and I remember looking at them and thinking, my God, like I look so ill. And I had no idea of that part of it. I just knew that I had this, I had cancer and I had to go to hospital um, and have all of these things. And sometimes I had to stay in and sometimes I could come home. And it was just, it was almost sort of normal. I just got on with it. Um, and that's, I think, really a testament to my, my parents, <clears throat> really and our family and friends we didn't have any well we we didn't have family living locally um so my for my parents it was really difficult having a child so ill and having a lot of hospital appointments and visits and things plus they had my brother and they both worked full time as well and they and they both worked through my treatment too um so it really having all the family support but then having to watch me go through that and as I said, the way that I looked sometimes, I was I was very poorly. Um, so, yeah, um, this, the other side effects, I know I got a lot of headaches. Um, 
and I just remember constantly being hungry all the time <laughs> um, and I remember having um, the metallic taste which at the time I didn't I didn't know what it was and interestingly enough although both my parents are medical they didn't know it either and it was only in recent years when I was reading an article or someone had mentioned about the metallic taste and I said to them you know that time that I absolutely refused to eat that rice in that restaurant because I was convinced that it had lemon on it that was the nearest taste I could think the nearest thing I could think of and they had the manager out and everyone was telling me it's plain rice Lara it's fine and I was convinced that there was something wrong with that rice and I couldn't eat it um, that was why. So that was interesting because I, I would turn away foods purely by taste, by the, the taste difficulty. Um, but yeah, no, I remember being hungry all the time. So I'd literally eat my parents and family friends out of house and home, really. <laughs> and it's, it's a dilemma, isn't it? Because I think, you know, your natural instinct as a parent is you want to feed your child. So I think parents were probably happy about that in a way, yeah. whereas unfortunately other children don't want to eat so um yeah um no that's you know a, a very challenging time but again you mentioned this your parents having to try i uh, really try to have some sort of normality in your in, in that period of time as well so how were you managing um let's say with your with your friends and with school um and i suppose with normal as you say normal childhood activities yeah yeah so i was still going to school um and even when i was because at that time um i know nowadays maybe there's more opportunity to have treatment at home um but i actually did spend quite a lot of time in hospital and i don't know if that's still the case for children nowadays but you know you're talking a week two weeks at a time to have the intravenous chemotherapy um, so my school teacher would come in and visit me and would bring work and I just did it because it was just normal. I was actually wanting to do it so that I could get one book ahead in maths than the rest of the class. <laughs> um, just little things like that that just sort of kept my, my schooling going. Um, the, yeah, my, my class teacher was really like uh, supportive and I, had, I was lucky to have a very close best friend um, so she would come and visit me in hospital. She would want to stay. When I lost my hair, she asked her mum to cut her hair oh. um, because I'd lost mine. Um, and if she had inset days at school and her mum would ask her, what do you want to do? She would say, I want to go and see Lara. Um, and yeah, she knew that I was ill and she knew the word cancer again, wouldn't have understood the significance of that and we do talk about that time like it's it's something that we kind of reminisce about and um you know one time we were sort of reminiscing and i think we, it both kind of hit us like you know to be that age we i do remember thinking that i when i reflect back that age you, you just you're not you're still a child but there is a change happening and I do remember feeling quite, at times, there is something different about me um, compared to, to, to the other children my age. And I was the only one in hospital that, of people that I knew. 
Um, but no, we still do things. We still go out as a family. As I say, mentioned, we've got lots, lots of friends here, family friends who all had children our age. So we would still like play together and do things. Um, and we were fortunate enough um, about 18 months into my treatment to be able to go on the first holiday since I'd been ill. Um, so I was still on treatment. We went to Florida for three weeks. Um, and that was organised through um, an organisation called the Christine Lewis Trust that had an, they had an office in the hospital. Um, so they kind of coordinated everything. And obviously my parents would have had lists of like doctors and my treatment protocols and all of that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, me and my brother, like we remember that holiday and um, yeah. Disneyland and all of those things and we, we got to do all of those things even though I wasn't wasn't very well um, so yeah I still managed to be a kid I guess um, but um, I know the children were fine um, but um, family friends will recall um, the uh, I don't know the uh, what's the word the behavior of adults actually <laughs> was quite surprising there's a couple of incidents where um you know adults would stare at me because i would be yeah bald with head and my skin got quite sensitive as well that was one of the other side effects um so i would often wear clothes that were probably about three or four sizes too big for me <laughs> and i had big dot martin boots because i had foot drop or something so i had an insole and they were the only shoe that they really fitted in and I didn't care, <laughs> you know, I was quite happy I'm just playing there, but obviously for other people, um, you know, maybe you don't often see um, a child completely bald running around without a care in the world. So, um, you know, and I, I think, yeah, family and friends are probably just quite protective of me, I guess. Um, yeah. So, yeah, a challenging time, but it's good that you have some really good memories there of that period of time. And you mentioned... You mentioned staff there so you know you would have come across um a huge amount of different faces yeah. whilst you were in hospital and coming for appointments and um can you remember you know i suppose uh, the impact of those health professionals on you at that time and i suppose going forward into your kind of adolescent years though you know the the impact and the importance of the support you would have received yeah, so there was one consultant um, that treated me throughout my whole uh, treatment and follow-up um, and he so happened to be the consultant on call the night I was admitted um, and he was absolutely brilliant and um, towards the end of my treatment he moved to London and I remember my parents, asked, well my mum specifically asking me would you still like to see Dr. So-and-so? And I said, yes. And she asked me why. And I said, because he knows me. <laughs> like, you know, um, but unbeknownst to me, there was then this big discussion with with our health board um, because obviously um, to carry on being seen by him, there would be have to be some sort of agreement between the organisations that was obviously over my head. Um, so, but that we managed, that managed to happen and actually I'm very grateful for that and he was very supportive of still seeing me and that meant a lot to me 
um, particularly when I was going into yearly follow-up. Um, so um, I actually, I think I actually did six monthly follow-up for a while, and I know they normally extended it to a year, but I think they did that so that I was having a follow-up locally and a follow-up with him. Yeah. And actually locally, every time I had follow-up, I was seeing a completely different doctor. And so me and my dad or my mum would have to go through the medical history all over again every time, which was fine. And I understand staff change, staff changes and everything. Um, but I much rather being seen by the, by the consultant that treated me. I didn't have to go over everything, literally pick up where we left off. And he, I think out of all the consultants I saw, he was always the one that would speak to me, even when I was younger. Um, but he would always speak to me and when it came to deciding whether to carry on having follow-up or to be discharged he asked me and I'd looked at my dad and he said you can ask your dad if you want but this is I'm actually asking you <laughs> um, so that was really lovely so that really made um, really made a difference to me um, and I'm you know sort of since then I've always been a bit of a advocate for continuity of care really um, yeah, I came across lots of nurses as well. Um, uh, some lovely, some not so lovely. So I will remember the nurse who was quite grumpy with me when I um, she was on a night shift and I wanted to just let her know that I was going to the toilet because I was in a side bay by myself and I'd been lying there for a while thinking, should I just go or should I tell her that I'm going so in case she looks in and wonders where I've gone? And she just was like, well, go on then. As if like, why are you asking me? And I remember feeling like not, I felt a bit embarrassed about that, a bit silly. Um, but then there was, um, I remember a lovely nurse. I'll always remember her. Um, I loved it when she was on shift because um, when she came to take blood, I had a portacath in. Um, I didn't have a Hickman line, I had a portacath. Um, and she'd have to like change the dressing and things and my skin as I said before my skin was really sensitive and I really didn't like having the dressings removed or you know like the pads for the ECG oh yes um but she would always let me help her <laughs> um and I'd take ages but it meant it meant that I had a bit of I guess control over how fast the dressing was being removed and I could do it the way that I wanted to which made me feel better um, and she knew that I prefer when they were doing the rounds to take blood because um, the nurses on the ward used to do that at the time um, she knew that I'd rather go first because I didn't like having it done so if there weren't other if the other children didn't mind or weren't first she would come to me first and so I just always remember those like really little little things that make make a difference <laughs> so so important you know you talked there about i suppose it's having a bit of power over the situation and mm. you know joint decision making yeah and as it comes back to you know the whole i suppose ethos of family-centered care so mm. really important and i suppose if we move forward then you know into your teenage years and and i suppose into where you are now you know I, I suppose what you're highlighting there too is really important and would that be some kind of advice that you would give health professionals in that situation? Yeah I think that you know I, I, people often say to me oh you won't remember much because you were little and I'm thinking I remember loads I was seven I finished treatment when I was nine I'd follow up till I was 16 I remember a lot 
Um, and it's not, you know, everyone's different. So some people will want to talk about it and other people don't. And that's, you know, that's fine. But I've always talked about it and reminisced about it. So I remember a lot. So I think that's something for, yeah, healthcare professionals to remember that even children remember um, really, you know, challenging times. They will remember you. Um, and they, you know, they do know, we do know what is the difference between a good attitude and a bad attitude is. Um, and it was interesting that the nurse that had been a bit funny with me, um, actually later on when we were, I was talking to my parents about it, they said, oh, we, we didn't get on with her either. She was really not pleasant at all. Um, so it's interesting. Very, the, yeah. the adults <laughs> kind of felt that and that I picked up on that as, as a kid so yeah really I'd say you know children do remember and they do they do what we do want to be involved and we do we might not understand the full significance of everything um but you know I I, I always knew when I was going in for a lumbar puncture and what that was and that I'd have to go under anesthetic um, you know, I, I knew the process for, you know, having my blood taken and if I was going into hospital, I kind of knew what that would look like. So, yeah, we do pick up on things. Yeah, really important. So I suppose here you are now. So I suppose, you, you know, you clearly have reflected on so much of that during that period of time. So thinking about health, I suppose, um, in general, what does being healthy now mean to you, Lara? Um, well, I always remind myself that there was no um, cause of my cancer that we can we can explain. Um, so in some ways that was a bit hard because I think sometimes you want a reason. Um, so for a while, particularly in my younger teenage years, I wanted a reason. Like I wanted to know why why did I get it and how can I not get it again. Um, but I think sometimes, like in my case, there was no reason. Um, it just was what, yeah, it happened. Um, so, but it is always at the back of my mind. So I try and be as healthy as I can. Um, like in recent years, I've, I've taken up running to, to try and like keep fit. Um, I try and eat a balanced diet, but I don't... Um, you know, I don't take it too seriously. Um, like I still enjoy myself. Um, I don't drink, but that's purely choice. I just don't like the taste of it. So that's got nothing to do with my cancer, but that's just my personal uh, choice. Um, I definitely don't smoke. And you, no one can ever convince me <laughs> that smoking of any sort is a good idea. So, <laughs> um, and I've always felt quite strongly about that. And I think although my cancer wasn't related to smoking, um, you know, where the mass was, it was on my chest. And I do think to myself, actually, why would I do something that could cause myself an illness when I got one for doing absolutely nothing wrong? Um, so yeah, um, yeah, and I just, yeah, I, I just try and just in, enjoy life really. And if I wanna do something, I'll, you know, do it um yeah and I I've gone into healthcare myself not nursing um I felt that was a bit too close to home um 
but uh, yeah, I got into occupational therapy um, and um, I actually thought that I wouldn't want to work in oncology or palliative care because I thought again that would might be too close to home and I am quite a sensitive person so I kind of reflect on that um, but actually before before I came into lecturing that was my specialism was palliative care um, and so yeah you can uh, separate the two I guess and but it can um, sort of inform your practice and you know have that level of empathy without without overstepping um, you know professional professional boundaries and, and that kind of thing. Oh, well done Lara um, so I suppose within all this, you know, you have touched on this, is I suppose your mental health and your well-being throughout this period of time. And I suppose, you know, going from childhood to adolescence and now as an adult, how, I suppose, has that, you, you know, your, your past uh, impacted on that? And how do you, what would you, advice would you give um, for well-being? Um, well, I think the main thing is that it is always at the back of your mind when you've had cancer no matter how how much you've kind of come to terms with that and settled that for yourself it it is always there um and so um i am very mindful of myself my mental health my physical health what's going on for me and my body and if i notice a change I'm probably maybe a bit more cautious than I might be if I hadn't had it. Um, I did have a scare um, when I was 22. I found a lump in my neck um, and a needle biopsy was querying a lymphoma. Um, and so I had, to, I had to have the lymph node removed for further testing. And it, it turned out that it, it wasn't lymphoma. It was um, the Epstein-Barr virus causes glandular fever. Um, so I've never been more pleased to have a virus, but um, as I soon learned, it's quite a serious virus. <laughs> and yeah, uh, but for me, it was like, well, it's not cancer, so it's fine. Um, yeah, so that was a bit of a shock. Um, and again, just a reminder that you kind of don't know what's around the corner. Um, and yeah, obviously, the longer it goes on, the less likely I am to get cancer or recurrence or anything like that but um yeah I'm just sort of mindful and I try not to worry about it too much because you know hopefully it won't happen um yeah and I think it yeah I think it's just a case of just yeah just being mindful of things and not being afraid if you have got a worry um to raise it um in my experience, most healthcare professionals are understanding and empathetic and will do the best by you. I think in the whole time that I've been seen by doctors and nurses and people from different specialties and GPs, etc., I think I've only had one experience of a consultant that made me feel as if I was wasting their time. Um, and um, that was quite upsetting. But I decided that I was going to um, raise that as an issue or raise it I raised it a complaint um, and actually it was quite a positive outcome um, and it you know that that person then had sort of reflected on on things um, so you know and that's all you want really you just want people to understand that if they have made you feel a certain way or they've said something wrong or 
whatever that they you feel like you've been listened to and that they've reflected and that's kind of all you really want really everyone makes mistakes so and everyone has you know everyone in life has their own life outside of work but I think you know it's just important to kind of separate that really particularly if you're in a professional <laughs> job yeah totally Lara totally oh thank you so much for sharing your story it's 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 invaluable and you know going through the different stages that you have done you know and 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 your thoughts and your experiences during that period of time is really really appreciated so thank you again Lara and I wish you all the best you're welcome thank you thank you So a massive thank you to Lara for sharing her story. If you'd like more information on cancer and childhood cancers, please look at the NHS website, Teenage Cancer Trust or Cancer Research UK. Thanks for listening.